Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you guys together and worshiping together today, and, and I'm glad to be able to be back and to be preaching with you. Uh, let me say before I get into anything else, happy birthday, Lynn Saylor, back over here. Where everybody, give her a hand, give her a hand. I tell you what, that lady is busier than anybody I know, and uh, she deserves a happy birthday. Of course, also today is uh, our Memorial Day weekend, which we think about those who have paid that ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms, and the video just reminded us of that, uh, uh, the sacrifice, the laying down of life, the ultimate cost for freedom. And those sailors and soldiers and airmen and marines who have fought and died for our country did so because they believed there was something worth fighting for, even something worth dying for. They fought for certainly our freedoms, but also probably some of them for faith, for their family, for their friends. Um, I'm reminded of a, a movie. Uh, it's not a Memorial Day movie, but uh, anybody see the movie Cinderella Man? Anybody here? Remember that movie? Um, one of my favorite movies, it's based on the true story of a boxer named James J. Braddock. Uh, he was a, a good boxer uh, who lost his passion, got his hand broke, and couldn't win a fight, and, uh, and sort of lost his purpose in fighting. Uh, and so he quit the sport for a while. And when the Great Depression hit and his family slid into poverty, and he was having a hard time finding a job, uh, he went back to boxing. He made a startling comeback, in fact, fighting with passion and focus while upsetting better, younger fighters. And at one point in the movie, a reporter asked Braddock, what are you fighting for? And he replied, milk. I'm fighting for milk for my children. He found what was worth fighting for. And in our culture, people may take this idea of fighting uh, from a spiritual perspective for, for something in the wrong way. They may immediately go to the idea of violence. Uh, they may take my encouragement to fight for what is right as a call for violence. That, that is not what I'm talking about today. I want to be very clear. There is a right way and a wrong way to fight in the spiritual war that we are in. And the problem is that many people want to use the weapons of man to fight this spiritual battle that we're in. They want to target human enemies and go towards violence. But this is not the way of Jesus. Matt Woodley wrote a sermon entitled Fighting Well, and I liked his approach to this subject, so I'm going to share a little bit of his thoughts and my thoughts with you today on this topic. And we're going to be going into 1 Chronicles today in the Old Testament we meet a group of courageous people who knew how to fight for what was right. Now, this concept of fighting well can and should make us a little nervous. 
We, we've seen enough terrorist attacks and school shootings and beatings and lynchings and all kinds of things, not to mention the destructive nature of gossip and character assassination. And, and somebody is calling me. I can't believe it. Uh, that's a lady I deliver meals on wheels to. Oh, okay. Talk to you later, Miss Loretta. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, we've seen all of this stuff going on in our culture, and many of us, and I don't know if you're like me, but wh when is all this going to end? We need to stop all this fighting. Um, I I'm sympathetic to that plea, but I also agree with Arthur John Eldridge when he writes, eventually a man or a woman must come to realize that there are certain things in life worth fighting for. Take anything good, true, or beautiful upon this earth and ask yourself, can this be protected without a fight? And so in 1 Chronicles 11, we see a challenge to fight well for the right things in the right way with the right purpose and the right motive. And that ties into our big idea of the day, and that is fight well for the right things in the right way, with the right motive, because there are things worth fighting for. Anybody here agree with me on this? Now, for the next 20 chapters of First Chronicles, the focus is on David, King David. Our text really begins in chapter 11 and verse 1. All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, We are your flesh and blood. And this section of 1 Chronicles ends in chapter 12 and verse 38 with these words, They came to Hebron fully determined to make David king over Israel. So this sort of is like two bookends, giving us the theme for that section of 1 Chronicles. All Israel is united in the idea of making David their king. Now the people of God... Um, are, are, have been suffering from some low morale. And in the midst of these discouraging times, the author appealed uh, to this example of David. And when he's writing this, it's many years later, right? Now, look at King David, he's saying. David wasn't an ordinary king. He spent half of his life on the run, doing battle against evil forces. Look at his courage. It's worth it for us to lay down our lives for him, to join him in the fight for things that are right, that are good, that are true. He inspires us towards deeds of greatness. He should bring out the best in us. So let's join together and fight for King David. That certainly would have been a challenge for the people of that day. The author then points to a group that exemplifies what Israel needed to become. And they were called the mighty men of David. And they are listed in chapters 11 and 12. The mighty men of David, as you think about them, who, who were these mighty men? Well, first of all, and most importantly, they were men who shared one focus. And that was a loyalty to David. 
They were also incredibly diverse. They came from a lot of different tribal backgrounds. Each had a gift or a special skill. Some were specialists in hand-to-hand combat. Others were skilled with archery. The one thing that united them was their love and their willingness to fight and even die for David. And these mighty men, again, were loyal men. And I would suggest to you, church, that this should be our calling as well, although a little different. We all come from different backgrounds. <coughs> we might not even all be Americans in this room or watching on Facebook Live. <coughs> we don't all vote for one political party. There might be diverse opinions. We don't all like the same music or books or movies. We don't have the same types of personalities. We're different in that. And while we are all part of the human race, we come from different ethnic and racial backgrounds. And in spite of our differences, we are called to a life of love and unity. The mighty men of David were a people of incredible skill and heroism and courage because King David drew those things out of them. They did great things in response to the greatness of God or David. Uh, The story seems to tell us, uh, look at these courageous fighters. Because they loved David, because David was worth the trouble, they were willing to fight. Now, I love the stories of those mighty men. They were earthy and gritty and flesh and blood stories of real people fighting for things that really mattered. But there's a, a, a great story in First Chronicles 11, beginning in verse 15, and it, it's really an unforgettable story if you've ever read it. And it, and it might surprise us when, you, when we think of something worth fighting for, this may not be what would come to our mind, but it certainly came to theirs. Um, David is going through some very discouraging days. I mean, when we we read the story, he is actually in a cave, the cave of Agilom, and everyone wants him dead, including the powerful Philistine army on one side and the elite forces of King Saul on the other side, his own people. And as David is hiding in this cave, he is dying of thirst. And in frustration, he cries out, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Well, some of his mighty men heard him say this. And three of these men risked their lives to break through the Philistine lines, fighting their way to go and get David a drink of water From a well. Now, again, I'm not sure we would say that's worth fighting and dying for, but they did because they wanted to take care of David. And when they bring that water back to David, he refused to drink it. (laughs) Instead, he takes it and he pours it out on the ground. Now, some of us might be offended. You know, man, I, I risked my life to bring you this cup of water and you're pouring it out. But David said this, should I drink the blood of these men who went at risk of their lives? To him, that was 
the most honorable of efforts. Now, it was an extreme, over-the-top, daring act of devotion, but the mighty men risked their lives because they loved David. He was worth it, and he always brought out the best in them. Now, what does that have to do with us? I mean, we're thousands of years later. David was the greatest king Israel knew, but throughout the Bible, even during David's time, and I think even David prophesied this, God promised a king who would be greater than David, one who would reign over God's people and offer forgiveness. And so as we sort of think about ourselves today, I got a couple of questions to ask. Are you a mighty warrior for Christ? Are we mighty warriors for Christ? In Matthew 1, 1, we see that Jesus is that promised king and we are called to courageous deeds of devotion for him. And we need to ask some questions of ourselves. Who is Jesus? Is he really the son of God? Did he really come to earth, live a perfect life, Was he really sacrificed for our sins? Did he die? Did he rise from the grave? Is he now seated at the right hand of the throne of God? These are all things that the Bible tells us, but do you believe it? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you believe it today. I don't want to embarrass anybody or cause anybody to lie. That'd be bad to make somebody commit sin right in the church building, wouldn't it? But is this true to you? Is it true that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? That's what Colossians 2.3 tells us. Do you believe this? And if so, what does he draw out of me, out of you? Does Jesus draw out the best in us like David did those mighty men? If I truly understand who Jesus is and what he has done for me, I think it will inspire me toward deeds of courage and valor and risk and true greatness. Now, maybe some of us have attended church and some of us may lead Bible studies and serve faithfully and dutifully. We aren't always inspired to live for Jesus with courage and wholehearted passion. That's why I think uh, it's very appropriate that today Matthew mentioned our friends in India and how they're willing to suffer and be persecuted, even to die for the cause of Jesus. I mean, they put their faith into action even to the point of death. Now let me ask you, what actions, what attitudes, what lifestyle changes does Jesus inspire within you? I like the story Matt Woodley shared about uh, he and his wife. He said they went to a local Starbucks and he said the guy next to him in line kept asking him questions about his Starbucks experience. He said, hey, how do you like the coffee here? Is this your favorite Starbucks? What keeps you coming back to Starbucks? 
How long are you willing to wait to get your coffee? <laughs> These are strange questions, right? He was fascinated with all things Starbucks, and then the guy finally confessed that he travels around New York opening new Starbucks stores. And after he left, Matt's wife said, wow, that guy's passionate for the kingdom of Starbucks. And he said, Matt said to her, I think he has more passion for Starbucks than I do for Jesus. I mean, here was a guy willing to lay down his life to give us bitter coffee at outrageous prices, right? But brothers and sisters in Christ, there, there seems to be something tragically wrong when the world has more passion for coffee than for Jesus, than the people of God have for Jesus. And it's true many times, isn't it? We, we can become so passionate about temporary things like coffee or sports or material possessions, even social media. You don't believe it? Take away your child's cell phone and see how passionate they are about social media. And I shouldn't just put it on the kids because I think as adults we're sort of the same way. We don't know what to do if we don't have our phones, if we're not connected. Or what about entertainment? We're so passionate about entertainment. And all these things are temporary. When life is over, where will they be? Shouldn't we be more passionate about what is eternal? So what does it mean to be a mighty warrior for Christ? I, I'm not, I'm not going to try to give you some simplistic answer today because we live in a very complex world. We, we can't just get out our swords and start hacking away, you know. That, that's not the way of Jesus. But there are big issues that we should be willing to fight for. I mean, we should fight for justice. I mean, shouldn't we all want justice? I mean, the Bible's full of how God is giving justice to people who are mistreated. We, we should be fighting against world hunger, even hunger in our own backyard, 86 hunger right here at Christ Church. We, we should be pouring into that ministry, trying to make sure children in our community are not starving or going hungry. We fight against sexual abuse of children and for the healing of those who have already been abused. I think of Chrissy Pinnell and her efforts to reach out to women who have had abortions. And, you know, look, we, we don't agree with abortion, but many women are duped into thinking that that's a really good choice. And then they feel the regret and the guilt and the shame, and they live with that. We fight for our community that they might have the chance to know the peace of Jesus. You know, every time you turn the TV on and there's fighting and violence in the community and you think, what, what can fix this? I'm going to tell you something. Laws are not going to fix it. I mean, we have laws to make sure that those who do wrong are taken away from the community. But the laws are not fixing things. If, if they did, 
Bad things would have stopped a long time ago. But friends, the only thing that will fix what's wrong in our culture is Jesus. He's the only one. We fight against a culture that wants to crush us and pervert every good thing that God created. Do you recognize that yet? I mean, the culture wants to make what was once right into something that is wrong and what was once wrong into something that is right. And many churches are caving into this woke agenda that really isn't awakened. It is blinded by the working of Satan. He wants to pervert God's ways. He wants to corrupt our children. He wants to draw us away from God. And so we fight against that. We fight for freedom from legalistic religion. These are the big things we fight for in our lives. But how do we fight well in the midst of these overwhelming issues? It's not easy. I think it requires passion, and we we need to reflect upon what's going on. We need to be able to discern how we're going to come against it. And they are complex questions, but as Christ's church, that's the name of our church, an apostrophe S on the end of Christ. You know what that means? That means he owns the church. It is his. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's his. And so we need to turn to him. And we need to ask him, how do we deal with the culture that we're in? If Jesus means anything to us, we have to respond as the church with justice and compassion We must commit ourselves to fighting well. And thank God that there have been spiritual warriors who have fought for the right things over the years. I'm reminded of years ago, maybe only a couple of you were alive at this time, uh, but William Wilberforce, back in the 1800s, who who was alive? E.T.? No, this might be before E.T.'s time. Um, But he was a British politician and a philanthropist and a leader who fought for the abolition of slavery in England. Now, when he became serious about his faith, evangelical Christianity was not a very popular thing amongst the upper class of England. Others who shared his convictions were roundly criticized and ostracized from society. He considered getting out of politics because of the heavy heat that he was experiencing. But his mentor, John Newton, encouraged him to stay in the fight for what was right. They believed that Christ and our faith should inform our political and moral views. I agree with that. Don't you? The progressives of his day set themselves against his principles of life. Now, it was these very principles directed by his faith in Jesus that led him to become the driving force to bring about change in the British government and its laws concerning the transatlantic slave trade. And in 1789, he made a speech in which he clearly made his opinions on slavery known. 
He believed it was evil and reprehensible, and they needed to abolish it. He would propose many resolutions to abolish slavery after that, and they were either rejected or they were pushed back by his opponents through some parliamentary procedures. Aren't parliamentary procedures great? They keep so many good things from happening sometimes. Finally, he was able to get his bill passed in 1807. Think about that, almost 20 years it took, ending the slave trade for good in England. Now this all came at a great personal cost. He made political enemies. He lost friends. He was persecuted by people there who felt like he was wrong. To some, he was considered a traitor to England. But his faith in Christ enabled him to fight the good fight and finish the race. Without William Wilberforce and his efforts, who knows how long slavery would have continued in England. But praise God, he fought that good fight. Now, a a more modern person would fight for what is right. Her name is Marjorie Dannenfelser. Anybody here ever heard of Marjorie Dannenfelser? I I sort of doubted that anybody would have. She is actually the president of the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America organization. Marjorie Jones Dannenfelser actually grew up here in Greenville, North Carolina. She has worked for many years to abolish abortion in America. She's considered to be the most important voice in bringing down Roe versus Wade. She is the author of Life is Winning. Every pro-life protection that she had seen in her lifetime had been wiped off the books. Her her conversion to the pro-life movement came after she got out of Greenville. She grew up an Episcopalian here, and she was very pro-choice. She went to Duke, of all places, Duke, in the pre-med program, but she moved to philosophy. She always loved politics, and she was searching for some intellectual satisfaction and some sound and factual arguments. And in her search, she realized that her pro-choice beliefs did not meet those standards, and they certainly went against the faith that she had. And as she began to consider the points, she realized that being pro-choice was intellectually unsound. And the Holy Spirit, she believes, is central to all of her work. Her faith has transformed her views. Now, many people doubted that Roe versus Wade would ever be overturned, but now it has been. That doesn't mean that abortion's been abolished. Now the states will make those decisions. But it's hard to even count the number of children who may have been saved because of her efforts. Think of the value of one human being, one life. What would you do to save the life of another person? Especially an innocent person who is vulnerable. I mean, if you were walking by and you saw someone beating up some little baby or some little young person, what would you do? Would you just walk by? Would you say nothing? Would you just let that happen? 
Well, Marjorie wasn't willing to do that. She says the effect of this will not be fully known until we get to heaven and we see all those who were saved. Both Marjorie Dannenfelser and William Wilberforce were influenced by their faith to act upon an injustice that they observed. They became mighty warriors for Christ. And these examples are both high-profile examples of people who felt a conviction, and their faith spurred them on to fight for what they felt was right. And most of us, though, need to start with maybe little issues right in front of us. And there's a key word that runs throughout this chapter in 1 Chronicles, and it's the word help. Now, some of the names mentioned in the mighty men of David have to do with the idea of being helpers. David's prime supporter from the Gadites was a man named Ezer. Guess what his name means? Help. Ahiezer, a chief of the Benjamites, means helper. What does it mean to fight well? Well, I think maybe it means to be a helper. You're there to support your brothers and sisters. You stand side by side and defend those that you care about who are fighting the good fight for what is right, with the right motives and the right weapons. Helpers show up and say, Jesus, where do you want me to help today? A helper shows up every day and says, Lord, I'm alive and well. How do you want to use me today? Who can I touch today? Where do I get to serve today? Notice, where do I get to serve, not where do I have to serve? Different attitude. I'm reporting to duty at church, in my school, here at home, in my marriage, at my job, in my neighborhood, just show me where to help. So it may be that you're not the leader of the fight. You might not be the David. You might not be the William Wilberforce. You might not be the Marjorie Dannenfelser. But you can support and you can help. You just have to figure out in your own heart and mind what things are worth fighting for in life. Have you thought about that? Have you made a decision? Can you say the things worth fighting for in life? A church is worth fighting for. The church created by God, not, not by men, but by Jesus himself. Some of us take church for granted. We show up and expect certain services, but we don't want to help out. I say this not with an angry heart, but with one that grieves. I mean, the church is worth fighting for, and we need you to fight well, to get involved in service and to pray for the leaders of the church. Your marriage is worth fighting for. Marriage requires us to fight well, or else we will drift apart and die as couples. How many of you would say that your kids are worth fighting for? Raise your hand. I know that you believe that. Your children, your grandchildren, we must fight for their health and future success, but even more for their faith. 
We don't want them to grow up in a culture where their faith is dismissed and they're told that they're ignorant for believing, but that's the culture that we live in. So they need our support and our encouragement. The culture wants to crush their faith. And more importantly, we must fight for their spiritual lives. Fathers and mothers, do you fight for the spiritual health of your children? You know, your neighbors who don't know Christ are worth fighting for. You know, they, they could die and go to hell unless you share, unless you reach out to them in love, unless you try. Your faith. Don't minimize the importance of fighting for your own faith. There are plenty of things attacking your faith right now. We must fight well for the right things in the right way. But how do we fight well and not become mean and self-centered and even violent? We fight with a different spirit because we fight through and because of our King Jesus, who has a different sort of was a different sort of warrior himself. He fought for the world by dying on a cross to make peace with God. Now, a hint as to the kind of fighting we must engage in is found in 1 Chronicles 12, 18. The Holy Spirit comes upon one of David's mighty men, Amasai. And the first thing Amasai does is declare his loyalty to David. He says, we are yours, old David. We are with you, O son of Jesse. And basically what he's saying is, we belong to you. We owe you our lives. And Amasai then prays for peace for David. And the word typically translated as success in the NIV is the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. And Amasai is praying peace, peace to you, and peace to those who help you, for your God will help you. And in his prayer, Amasai is also making a prediction of peace that will be found in Jesus. A true warrior doesn't just want to win, even if the cause is 100% right. You know what I find from most people who have been in war? They want peace. They appreciate peace more than most of us do. Our battles are about winning the hearts of people. And if I win the battle but trounce and wound my brother with my anger and my self-righteousness, what have I accomplished? We fight because Jesus would want us to. And we fight under the overarching theme that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and that His kingdom will come. But friends, if we win the argument, but alienate our spouse, what good have we done? If I win the debate, but lose the soul of the person, what have I won? No, friends, we don't fight the way the world fights. We don't win our battles the same way the world does. In 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 3, we read, For though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to, to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments 
and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So friends, we don't fight the way the world does. We don't use the weapons that the world uses. We focus on God and the weapons He provides for this spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, 10-18, we read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet firm fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. This is the way we fight. Let us fight the good fight of faith. I read about some who fought that kind of fight actually in wartime. And I want to end today with that story. During World War II, a U.S. Army transport ship carrying 902 servicemen was torpedoed by a German submarine. And panic and chaos quickly set in as the men raced for lifeboats in the frigid waters off the coast of Greenland. And in the midst of all that pandemonium, four Army chaplains worked to calm the frightened men. One was a Jewish rabbi, one was a Methodist, one was a Roman Catholic priest, and one was a Dutch Reformed minister. And on the deck of the ship, they worked to distribute life vests to soldiers escaping from the frigid waters. And when they ran out, each minister simultaneously removed their jackets and gave them to the soldiers. They didn't call out for soldiers who were in their particular tradition. They simply gave their jackets to the next man in line. One survivor would later say, it was the finest thing I have seen or hoped to see this side of heaven. And as the ship went down, survivors in nearby rafts could see the four chaplains, arms linked and braced against the slanting deck. Their voices could be heard offering prayers and singing hymns. And of the 902 men aboard, only 230 survived. Congress later conferred a posthumous medal of heroism, the Four Chaplains Medal, upon those four chaplains. Before boarding the Dorchester, the Dutch Reformed minister, Chaplain Poling, asked his father to pray for him. And these are the words he said to his father, not for my safe return, that wouldn't be fair. 
Just pray that I shall do my duty. Never be a coward and have the strength and courage and understanding of men. Just pray that I shall be adequate. Friends, we are in a spiritual war for souls. Our family's souls, our neighbor's souls, the souls of the whole world. God needs spiritual warriors who will pray fervently and who will fight. But again, we don't fight with the weapons of man. We don't fight the way the world fights. We fight the way Jesus fought. Maybe we need to pray as that chaplain prayed that we can just be adequate for the job. Brothers and sisters in Christ, King Jesus fought for us. He bled and died to set us free. Are we fighting well for him? Does he inspire you toward greatness and courage and risk? Let's pray for the spirit of a mighty man or a mighty woman to descend into our hearts and recognize the things worth fighting for. Father, first of all, we thank you for all those who have gone before us to provide the freedoms we can experience today. And not just in our military, but those in this spiritual warfare, those who have made the ultimate sacrifice to share the word of God. Your word tells us to give honor to whom honor is due. And when someone makes a sacrifice so that our lives might benefit, they deserve our honor. Of course, Jesus deserves the greatest honor. His sacrifice has made it possible for all of us to experience spiritual freedom. And so today, Father, I know we live in a culture where many people have rejected Jesus. And we are in a fight to save the souls of men and women all around us. Co-workers, people we're in school with, the, the person at the checkout counter, the, the waiter or waitress we'll meet after church. You, you want spiritual warriors who will fight. We fight with the weapons of spiritual warfare, prayer, and love, and grace. Help us to do your will. Help us to adequately fulfill our mission. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, I don't know what God is doing in your life or what God's calling you to do. But I do know that God wants every one of us to make a difference in our world, to be mighty warriors for Jesus. And I would encourage you, if you need prayer, uh, if you need to make a decision about your relationship to Jesus today, why don't you come as we stand and sing? And if you don't come now, then as we're talking out here a little later, just come up and say, hey, I need to talk. And we'd love to talk with you. Let's stand and sing.